Carrie Miller, and this is Fly Over Down the Mississippi, a national call-in show about identity and culture, challenges and solutions along the Mississippi River and the Delta. On Monday, we started in St. Paul, and we've been making our way through Iowa and South each day. Today, we've come to New Orleans to the studios of WWNO to talk about the inescapable consequences of climate change and the urgency of inequity. Think of it like this. If you took a map of the United States and you used a red crayon to color in the places where weather-related disasters strike over and over, right here where we are, you'd color in a deep crimson swath across the arc of the coastline that stretches between the Florida panhandle and Houston, Texas. And New Orleans is right in the middle of that arc. The New York Times recently calculated that 10 zip codes near New Orleans sustained 11 percent of all of the nation's disaster-related losses over the last 15 years. Think of the scope and the scale of that. Many, many of the people who sustain those losses are middle and low-income folks. So, What does that mean for the way New Orleans and the Delta prepare for the flooding and the destruction that the changing climate is bringing here? What happens to people who don't have the money to move or rebuild? What happens to people who own businesses and they're seeing the impact of the changing climate and everything that is coming downstream to them? How much federal money is fair to put into a vulnerable place like Louisiana's coast? You can see why this is complicated. So as our guests join us, I'd like to hear from you wherever you are on the river, but particularly here in the in the Delta. How is climate change affecting the way you make your living and the place you call home? So I want to hear about this up there near the headwaters where we normally are all the way down the river and the watershed and here to the Delta. What do you think is most misunderstood about your situation here at the bottom of the Mississippi and in the Gulf of Mexico. So your experience really important to this conversation today. One eight three flyover one, and you can tweet me at Carrie K E R R I M P R. Now tonight we're going to be in La Rose, Louisiana, for a town hall on solutions to the challenges that we've been hearing all week and that we're going to hear today. That discussion will air tomorrow at noon. Our guest for this discussion, Tegan Wendland, is with us. She's acting news director at WWNO Public Radio. She's done a lot of the reporting on the issues we're talking about. We couldn't have made this happen without you, Tegan. Good to have you here. It's so nice to have you here, Carrie. Happy Johnson is with us, chief resilience officer at the Lower Ninth Ward Center, and he's the author of Backyard Bayous. Welcome. Good Thank to you have so you much. here. Heather Stone joins us. She's oral historian an assistant professor in education at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And she's with us from Lafayette. And Heather, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank thank you so much. Heather, um, one of the realities of living on the Mississippi and in the watershed is flooding. We see, I think we see some of the the loss and the trauma that happens in flooding in our part of the world and in Iowa, where we were yesterday. But boy, this is an ever-present kind of thing here in uh, in Louisiana. And, and I'd like to know how you think this idea of loss and what climate change is doing is shaping the spirit of the people that live here. And I thought of you for this because you're an oral historian. What do you hear about that? So I think in order to understand where people are now, you have to go back to the history of people living 
on the Mississippi for ten, the last 10,000 years. And the Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw, who is a tribe on Ildijan Charles that I've been working with for about three years, their community is was at one point surrounded by a maze of wetlands. Mm-hmm. And now the island is surrounded by open water. So the communities were both protected and they isolated them from external forces, which have now crept into the island with the salt water and the connection of a road. And, you know, at one time they had, they were able to honor their traditional ancestral ways by hunting and fishing and trapping. And now those ways to make a living have disappeared with the wetlands. Tegan, this is a place I think that you were telling me before we went on air that you'd done some camping. You really learned how the identity of the geography shapes the people that live here. And they are people who are going to have to move, right? Yes. And it's still a very beautiful place. I mean, it's certainly a different reality than it used to be. There's much less land. But I went and I I camped um, for, for a weekend there when I was reporting on the fact that this community of this Native American tribe there received a big grant from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to actually relocate off of that island to about 40 miles north to a safer piece of land. And so instead of just sort of parachuting in and and interviewing a few people, I stayed for the weekend. And that was, I think, the moment where I really, you know, I'm I'm a Midwesterner originally. I'm from Wisconsin. But it was the moment where I really realized why it was so hard for people to you know, to reckon with leaving this land that they're so intimately connected with. Happy, do you um, do you find that there's a, I don't know, a kind of fatalism about this? Yes, we've been used to the kind of changes that flooding and other, I don't know, disasters bring to us, and this is something that we take in stride? Or are you seeing people who are, you know, in some ways emotionally scarred from this, from what it's been and what's coming? I would say a little bit of both. There's definitely been an enormous amount of meetings that have taken place on resilience planning and how do we adapt to climate change. And so I I know that there is meeting fatigue, but there's also, like was mentioned, you know, geographical pride in where we live in the place that we call home. And the lower ninth ward is such a unique jewel within New Orleans at one point had the highest black home ownership in the entire city. And so we are in a community that has faced turmoil mm-hmm. and discrimination historically and consistently, but we call this place home and we want to see it thrive and we'll do whatever it takes to you know, maintain it. Let me take a call here from Matt in New Orleans. Hi, Matt. Really glad you were listening and that you called in. What are you thinking about? Hey, how you doing? Um, Hi. I just wanted to chime in and, uh, you know, coastal flooding and flooding caused by, like, levees being toppled is obviously devastating. But one thing that mm-hmm. I've noticed in my 26 years living here is that the uh, heat has just gotten unbearable. It's just like high 90s for most of the year and uh that's something i think affects everyone to a degree that might not be you know easily quantifiable this is a really good point because that is a way that you experience climate change in 
you know, a day to day way. And it also makes you think if more of this is coming, how long, you know, roots or no roots. Right. How long can we stand that? Tegan, is this something that you hear about, the heat, in, in your uh, reporting? Sure, yeah. We just did a whole series on how prepared the city of New Orleans is, sort of as a coastal city, right. to deal with the challenges that climate change will bring. And increased heat is certainly one of those challenges. And, you know, we find that many people who are low income can't necessarily afford to have their air conditioning running at a much higher rate and running consistently through the entire summer or late through the through the night, and that the infrastructure the electric grid that actually you know gets the power to the people's homes to keep their their AC running is is aging and that's a problem in cities across the nation. You know, happy this is something I was thinking about when you were talking about uh, the lower ninth ward. Solutions for some people, depending on your income, are not really viable solutions for others, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you have federal money step in, state money step in. A lot of people don't have when we think about resilience a lot of that is probably tied to resources, right? What can you do to help create your own solutions if there aren't going to be enough resources to go around? What do you find in that? Absolutely. And this this heat thing is interesting because CSED has been, you know, working with the city's uh, Department of Health and they actually have a heat outreach uh, arm where they've been going to residents and talking about the importance of changing the filters and they're finding that some residents don't have the resources to actually have those costs. You know, they don't have the money disposable to do that. But this is what I believe is that effective resilience planning engages community science, environmental science and youth to produce equitable safeguards. Tell me what you mean by that. For too long, young people have not been engaged in this process. And if we are going to create a city of the future, we have to engage the people who will inherit the mess that we've kind of created. And what I mean is that every ward has to have access to the same safeguards to be able to respond to a disaster, right? And so, for example, if we are giving resources to one ward to adapt to climate change, we need to figure out a way how to, that, we're, that we're giving those resources to people who are the lowest income, who need the help the most, if that makes sense. Heather, hasn't that always been the history of a place like Louisiana? Yes. I've seen decisions made by external forces leading to loss of land, contamination of the soil, the drinking water, and leading to increased devastation for hurricanes without consulting the people who actually are affected by those changes. So they... Um, aren't given so a chance e- to weigh in. Yeah, inequity is is something that people are very familiar with. It sounds like it is ever more urgent with what climate change is bringing. Heather? Yes, I agree. And I would say that um, I don't, I do think resilience is tied to resources, but I think up and down the coast of Louisiana and the bayous, Louisiana is a, re- is a resilient our resilient communities. And since the 1800s, when people settled here, they have adapted to the the loss of the sediment or the levying um, of their area. And they've made changes in what they have to do or how they um, live. 
Heather Stone with us from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Happy Johnson with us, Chief Resilience Officer at the Lower Ninth Ward. Tegan Wenlin with us, Acting News Director at WWNO. And you, as we move into New Orleans today on this flyover series and talk about climate change and inequity, stay with us, get in on the conversation, 183-FLYOVER-1. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover from the studios of WWNO in New Orleans, Louisiana. All week, we've been talking about issues around the Mississippi River, the waterways that feed it, and the Mississippi Delta. Today, in New Orleans, for a call-in conversation and then a town hall tonight about the solutions of everything that we've heard along the way this week. I want to hear from you today about how climate change is affecting the way you make your living, your your sense of place, your identity, wherever you are along the Mississippi River. Also, you can tell me what is most misunderstood about the situation that you're in here at the bottom of the Mississippi on the Gulf of Mexico. So really opening some lines here for those of you in Louisiana as well. 183-FLYOVER-1, and you can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, and uh, use the hashtag Flyover Radio. Okay, back to the phones here to Danny in Grand Isle, Louisiana. Danny, thanks so much for waiting. Hi. Hey, no problem. Hey. No problem. Yeah, tell, tell me your today. story. Uh, I'm a fishing guy down in Grand Isle. It's been probably 200 days a year in a boat in Barataria Bay in the mm-hmm. estuary here. And so I just wanted to voice my uh, ideas that, you know, good. really we don't have barrier islands anymore. These little speed bumps, they're not even big enough to stop a bit of hurricane force. The uh, The marsh behind us is all falling away and uh that that big gap uh, it's as if grand isle's moving out into the gulf so you know i i just want people to understand when they look at the coastline they visit coquetry grand isle i mean you're really just looking at the skeletal remains of the estuaries wow. and for us to fix it oh my goodness it's uh, the magnitude the scope of it's just way bigger than what what can be repaired mother nature's going to win out it's the writing's on the wall you know if you want to talk about stuff uh really it's kind of like a comparison of treating a cancer victim for uh, a cold you know the, the cancer's going to get us so anyway danny that's my comment. If, if, for a moment if, if you would um since you're a fishing guide you have a particular view on the ecology of the water too w- what are you seeing well, we're seeing higher salinity waters. You understand that that landmass dissipates behind these islands as this marsh goes. And we have a 12-hour tide, so for 12 hours, water fills, and for 12 hours, it drops. Well, the, the total volume of water it takes to fill this this estuary has increased and increased and increased. So you have a high-range tide, maybe a foot and a half a tide, you're going to see way more gallons of water come in and go out than you would have seen in 1940. And that in and of itself causes land loss. It's, it's not all hurricanes or wind. You know, it's it's just the total 
total abandonment of landmass back there. Danny, I'm so glad for the call. Really glad you caught the show. Tegan, salinity is one of the things that we were hearing about further north on the river. How does it affect people who do the kind of work that Danny does and others? Sure. It's great to hear from you, Danny. We'll be down kind of near that area tonight in La Rose. And uh, yeah, certainly saltwater intrusion is a huge part of the problem here. We've lost nearly 2,000 miles of land in Louisiana since the 1930s, and the coast is disappearing here at one of the fastest rates in the world. And that's for a number of reasons, partly because the land is naturally sinking. We're in this deltaic landscape that was formed by the silty Mississippi River sort of dumping out over millions of years. But we've also levied the river Mm -hmm. all up and down. Mm -hmm. We've heard about that earlier this week, and that has prevented the river from from bringing, you know, that that silt and uh, dumping it to to rebuild land. So we're losing land because of a sort of natural process, the levying of the river, and then the canals that have been dug by oil and gas companies over the years to access their rigs out in the marshes. And so um, the salt water is coming in for a variety of reasons. You know, Happy, I was thinking about what this means for families with generations, Um who, you know, the family had fishermen in their generations, and now that's becoming ever more challenging. Just the Mm -hmm. kind of work, right, that your grandparents did and your great-grandparents did, and the way, what that means to an identity of a family, but also what it means to the realistic, this is how we made our living, Mm -hmm. and now we can't do that anymore. Do you hear about that from people? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I kind of want to tell Danny to keep uh, hope, um, and stay engaged in the process because your voice is really important to the outcomes we want to see in our state's coastal comprehensive master plan. In the Lower Nine, we have uh, the city's only urban bayou. It's called Bayou Bienvenue Wetland Triangle, and it was a once vibrant cypress swamp that was deteriorated by saltwater intrusion. And the picture, it really shows me and the young people that we take to the observation deck is the balance that Louisiana tries to tangle. Meaning? Commerce and our waterways um, and maintaining the cultural heritage and history that has made this such a special place. How do we rebuild land by reconnecting the river to the delta, keep our seafood industry vibrant, which produces 30% of the nation's seafood, and be a competitive port with the rest of the world. We've always danced with that. And unfortunately, the wrong type of interests have have won in the past. And now we're going back to correct those mistakes. And it's going to be a tough... Do you mean corporate interests when you say that? I mean, oil and gas. And even if we reconnect this to the gas plant issue and air conditioning units, the New Orleans City Council in the past has... has you know, pass this this application for a gas plant in New Orleans East on a site that is a FEMA federal floodplain that has uh, flooded, that is the most subsidence in any other part of the city. And yet we have not forced Intergy to invest in its uh, distribution and reliability for transmission lines. And so we're asking the poorest people to pay for something without building our resilience. But we are also looking to the oil and gas industry to fund our coastal master plan. You just mentioned the master plan, Happy. We have this this huge plan, which is actually looked to 
uh, other states look to it as a sort of model. It's pretty innovative, but the it, it, the price tag is around $50 billion, and we've only got about $70 billion for this master plan. And most of that is coming from the BP oil spill settlement, and then some is coming from the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act, which will give us some money from offshore lease sales. So there's an interesting irony in that, because the oil and gas companies have carved these canals that have contributed to land loss over time. We're also looking to them to help us pay for it. But the mitigation may not happen without the investment of the oil and gas industry. Is that fair to say? Well, I think, um, you know, we have like Go Mesa with the federal government and those in those royalties. We have a whole suite of a variety of pots of money that we're using to fund uh, the state's Coast Master Plan. But there's also some lawsuits um, that are on the books that Orleans Parish actually didn't get involved in, uh, but that we're seeing other parishes take really bold and aggressive action against old companies and saying, hey, um, not just through BP, but like we want you to pony up and help us restore the land that you've destroyed. And so the other thing that's interesting about the state's coastal master plan is that I think it comes out every five years mm-hmm. and then there's an annual plan and it is the most innovative in the Gulf Coast. And the the last iteration had maybe a few paragraphs about community engagement, about what it looks like for relocation costs. And this time, uh, this new plan has maybe like four pages, Carrie. And so we are making progress in terms of engaging communities and people and having their voice in that plan. That's what's often missing, community engagement. Let me go back to the phones because we have so many. If you're getting a busy signal, by the way, call us back because I really want to hear from you. This is, I guess, our last opportunity on this week on the Mississippi River to Laverne in uh, Baton Rouge. Hey, Laverne, hi. Thanks for waiting. Hey. Um, This has been a great series this week. I'm calling to you you as a family historian, a family who came over from France. Part of it came from Nova Scotia before the American Revolution and settled on the Mississippi River in what was then called Cabanossi, which is now St. James Parish, and then moved to Bayou Lafourche in Assumption Parish. And last week I saw a city map that showed Louisiana within the next 80 to 90 years pretty much gone, Shreveport in North Louisiana on the Red River being uh, waterfront property. And as a Cajun, as a partially Creole family, just that there's going to be a huge tragic loss there of community and culture in the loss of uh, land uh, in the lower in lower Louisiana. Laverne, I really appreciate the insight on on what this means for your family. Heather, tell me what you hear in in Laverne's description. Um. What I heard was that, you know, we are going to a lot of, I mean, I think in 90 years, Baton Rouge is going to be waterfront and it's scary. And I'd like to step back a little bit because I don't know if the people up the river completely know, um, because I didn't when I moved down here. When we in Louisiana say land loss, land loss, the marshes, the wetlands is part of the land loss. So if if you look at Louisiana, we don't have a traditional coast. Like we don't have beaches or that kind of stuff. We have the the marshland that surrounds the, the barrier islands, which the caller mentioned. With those gone, this you know, the land keeps eroding. And as we're if we're thinking about relocating communities, it's not just the decision to move this group of people here or here 
you're taking them off that land that they've lived on and that their ancestors, you know, survived and subsided on for 200 years. So it's not just moving. If you were in a subdivision, you're like, oh, well, my subdivision Mm -hmm. flooded. I'm going to move somewhere else. It's bigger than that. The identity is with the land. I'm really grateful for the description there because I think I, in my mind's eye, I had kind of a a hard edge, right, where the land ends. And now that you've described this, I remember how essential those marshes were to being protective of the land that remains. And you're saying they're disappearing really fast, too. Mm-hmm. The, when we talk about, you know, Louisiana lost 1,900 square miles of coast during the last century. That's the, the marshland. It's not necessarily the land where everybody's living. But once that once the marshland is gone, the next step is going when the when the Gulf gets to the cities, it's going to go to. Oh. Uh, back to the phones here to Addie in Delcom, Louisiana. Hi, Addie. How do things look where you are? Um, pretty grim, if I'll be entirely honest. Um, I'm 21 years old. I'm a young Cajun. And what you said earlier about our identity being tied to the land is very true. Uh, we are, at last rec- record, we are one mile in from the Gulf Coast. My town floods anytime there's heavy rain. You can see through sh- three straight city blocks because all of the houses are so lifted to avoid the flooding. Um, but as a young person, y'all mentioned earlier how that the young people need to take up the mantle and start working hard. But there's really a sense of, I would say, trauma for a lot of the young people, especially from who are right next to the Gulf. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Because for us, you know, since I was in third grade, we have been told that, you know, by 2035, my town probably is not going to be existing. Um, I have friends who live south of the cutoff point where if their houses flood, there is no insurance. They are not being rebuilt. They have given up on us, on our people. And we are people who didn't choose to settle here as Cajuns. We were forcibly placed here and we got the short end of the stick. And you're, whenever you talk about relocating, you're not just talking about relocating from an area. You're talking about relocating the industries. You're talking about people who, whose livelihoods are tied to the land. And there really is a trauma for us young people that I saw my school flooded. Heck, I'm at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and I've lost shoes because our, our school campus, even though it's in the north of the southern part of the state, uh, floods every single time. And I've lost shoes to the flooding because it floods every time it rains. Addie, super important to hear this. When when you hear, it, it, you know, in other parts of the country, and um, I think we're hearing a bit of this up at our end of the river, well, there's Mother Nature is going to win. There's nothing you can do about it. Just move. How does that sound to you? Well, as a Cajun especially, it hurts because we were forcibly removed from Canada. We were forcibly removed from a lot of other places. And this is where we got stuck. We didn't choose to live here to start off. My ancestors didn't get a choice in where they live, but they may do. And we are a strong, resilient people. But there is that trauma with moving of of we're trying to hold on to the last bits of the culture that we have and that we love. And it is tied to our ecology and our environment. And I'm from a shrimping village. What are the shrimpers supposed to do when the water salinity keeps changing and they can't reliably have an income? Right. Really glad for the call. Uh, I, I'm happy, 
How does that sound to you? It sounds yeah. pretty dis- it sounds pretty bleak to me. I, I can see why I hear some despair in what Addie's saying. Absolutely. And, you know, man, it's um, I want to give you a statistic. It's, it's a nearly half of all black children in New Orleans live in poverty. And that's compared to only nine percent for white children. And so when when I look at the 50 billion dollars to restore Louisiana, the key word I feel is is really missing from this is is a vision for equitable outcomes. How do we look at our major land loss crisis and connect it to raising income, especially for people that are in close proximity to the land that in the waterways that need to be restored? As a black man, I have a crucial connection and identity to the river because of my ancestors and because of slavery. And and I see the river in a whole host of different ways, some grim and some hopeful. And I and the work that we try to do is how can we tie it to some good? What can we really use these funds through education, mm-hmm. through training, and through diversifying participation. Public policy without public participation is not policy at all. Tegan, do you find in your reporting that, just to to follow on what Happy just said, that people feel like their views and their stories and their needs are represented as these plans come together? It's a very complicated question. The Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, which has written the Coastal Master Plan, certainly puts a lot of effort into creating avenues for community input. So Mm -hmm. every time they issue a new master plan, every five years, they do this whole community scoping process where they hold meetings all over the coast and invite people to come. Now, only certain people are able to take that time out of their day to engage in a process like that. So... Um, you know, the effort is there, but how effective it is, I guess, is another question. And we see that it's disproportionately the low income and uh, and minority folks who are affected and uh, being left behind on the coast. You know, there's sort of already this natural migration away from the coast, what Mm -hmm. we call an unmanaged retreat. Some areas since Hurricane Katrina have seen 40 percent of the people move north. And the folks that are left behind are the folks who can either afford to assume that risk and insure their homes or raise their homes up on on stilts 17 feet in the air, or the folks who can't afford to move. There are, I I would imagine, a fair quotient of people who simply don't have the resources to get out ahead of the rising floodwaters and whatever else climate change is bringing. Oh, absolutely. And that's why things like Evacuteer and our organization, CSED, working with residents, identifying seniors that need help in the event of a mandatory evacuation is so crucial. Carrie, if you came down to the lower nine and you saw the overgrown lots, you would say, whose responsibility is this? And what does teamwork and cooperation look like between residents and government to solve these kind of problems? I think you would be dismayed. You're listening to Flyover Down the Mississippi River. Today, we're in the studios of WWNO in New Orleans. And hearing from you at this end of the Mississippi and all up and down the Mississippi River and its delta and its tributaries, call in 1-83-FLYOVER-1. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover Down the Mississippi. We're in the studios of WWNO. 
uh, in New Orleans ahead of a town hall discussion tonight in La Rose, Louisiana, where we'll hear about the controversy around some of the solutions. We're, we're picking up on that a bit today, but that is a full conversation tonight, and you'll hear that tomorrow at noon on Flyover. In the meantime, call in and join the conversation as you talk to me today about how the urgency of climate change affects how you live, who you are, where you work, the identity of your family, 183-FLYOVER1. You can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, NPR. Heather Stone is with us. She's an oral historian and assistant professor in education at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Happy Johnson here, chief resilience officer at the Lower Ninth Ward. And uh, Tegan Wendland, she's acting news director at WWNO, and she's done a lot of reporting on these issues. Uh, Heather, before we go on to some other calls, I, I, I didn't hear your voice, and I want to, on this resources question and, you know, one person's solution if you have income seems pretty reasonable, but it doesn't if you don't have resources to turn to. And I think we said a moment ago that inequity is really the story of this place, So how do you think about that? I do think inequity plays a large part here. If you look at um, the the bayous of Louisiana and who has settled there, they were the people, like um, Addie said, who were forced from other locations. They ended up pretty much at the end. They couldn't go any further. They'd be in the Gulf. And they were forced there due to racial, economic other factors and they were there most of them are in small communities and the smaller the community most of the time the smaller not that they don't have a big voice but they don't have the political pull that the majority has and so unless they team up into one voice that's when they're not heard and that's part of why I do my work that I do you know I am in education, and I right now I'm documenting the stories of individuals and communities and making environmental changes come alive in the classroom through virtual reality. I am showing people that live in Minnesota or Iowa 360-degree videos of what it looks like down here now so that oh. the communities down here can share their voices and not in a way that the people can feel. They can hear the wind chimes. They can... Um, hear the, you know, the waves, whatever, but they're, they can actually experience it through virtual reality. And that's why I've not just doing the oral histories, but incorporating them into VR. Where can we see the, the virtual reality that you're doing? Is there um, a website we can go to? Yeah, you can go to my website, Dr. H. Stone at drhstone.com. And there's links to those. Um, you can see the videos of the virtual reality, and we're working yeah. on getting them up on Google Expeditions as well. But if you follow me, you can find out when they're up there. Thank you. Uh, Tegan, I just wanted to run a number by here to to see if this is right before we go back to calls. Um, I saw an estimate that said that more than 60 percent of single family homes that are flooded again and again here in Louisiana are homes with values under two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and that FEMA has spent over a billion on seventy two hundred homes here that have been subject to repetitive loss. Do those numbers sound right? 
Oh, those are some very specific numbers that I have not reported on so personally, we'll, but there's certainly been a lot of reporting on it in the in the past few years, especially since the major floods that hit Baton Rouge recently. Yes, many of these are repetitive lost properties. And um, the state has created or at least drafted a blueprint for a buyout program that would assist folks who experience certain types of flooding to move north and and to buy safer properties. But the cost for that program is $1.2 billion in order to relocate about 2,400 homes in in coastal floodplains. And so that's not happening yet. So, Happy, you can see that if you live somewhere else as a federal taxpayer who helps to fund FEMA, you say, my tax dollars going to restore people's property that has flooded again and again and again. Is that a good investment? You can, I I think you can probably understand why you might stand back in some other community in Montana or Oregon or wherever and say, is this really the the best way to use our money? Absolutely. And I think, you know, for our organization, um, sustainthenine.org, we are the, we are four black men that run an environmental sustainability advocacy uh, group, probably in the entire Gulf Coast. Uh And when we go to meetings with FEMA and meetings with CPRA, we're often the only black males there. And so to connect that to your question, I put it back to community. um, Community knowledge has not often been uplifted on the same level as environmental science. I see. And so now we're we're kind we're, we're getting there. We're moving there. And what we do is we hold a lot of workshops and, and training seminars to, you know, increase coastal literacy. And we work with the National Wildlife Federation to do that. Our goal is to have government stakeholders see and hear from communities so that their planning enhances and that and that the policies that they're looking to implement uh, changes. And I think if there was more of that, I think some of the questions in that that question might um, be different. I mean, we can't undervalue community knowledge and how it can enhance federal guidelines and federal uh, regulations. In fact, you know, there's some Miss Jones in our neighborhood. She's lived there, you know, she's third generation. And she could tell you better about how the water runs and flows on the streets than than anybody else. And if her knowledge was uplifted, you know, Sujan Water Board might have an easier job I in see. draining this Drainage, you know, uh, catch basin number 23, you know, once we get the rain call, it could be less damage. Yeah. And so we've got to figure out a way to uplift community knowledge better. Let me take a call but here I from don't Elton. Think... Uh, I'm sorry, Heather, go ahead. That's okay. I was going to say, I also think it's very hard to put a cost on not just the houses, but it's the communities and the culture that are in those houses And here again, we look at decisions that were made by others are affecting the people whose homes are lost. So, yes, they rebuilt there, but that was their their land where they've lived for three generations. So is it fair to say it's, you know, it's not worth the federal money to repair their home when it wasn't their decision that caused the problem that's causing the flooding? It's a it's a really good point. It's why I wanted to start with the idea of identity, right, and roots in a place. But I think you also know, Heather, that if you're standing back, if you don't if you don't have the connection to New Orleans, 
but you're looking at what's coming and you're saying, how many times are we going to rebuild in this area of land that is inevitably going to flood? It, it is exactly what makes this so complicated, right? Why the solutions aren't I, easy. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree. And I know that's why um, Chief Albert Nakan of the uh, from Ildijan is in favor of moving his tribe now with this the HUD grant because he's realized that in order to move forward, they have to move. Let me grab a call here from Sue in New Orleans. Hi, Sue. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi. Yeah, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, uh, there's a, there are African-American communities on the Mississippi River that suffer a double uh, whammy with both the petrochemical industry as well as climate change. Um, uh, I work, I, I volunteer with a group in St. James Parish in the 5th District. These folks in Freetown in St. James do not have an evacuation route. So if there was flooding to occur, which there does tend to be more and more flooding in the area, um, the evacuation route that they once had is now closed off for industry. So refineries, storage tanks, chemical companies completely surround these folks. So they've got that to deal with. Many of the residents, uh, many of them uh, have cancer or respiratory illnesses or um, skin conditions or all three. So I, I guess I'm, I'm just, um, I'm from here. I went away for a while. I came back. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still in a state of disbelief that how our state and our leadership, particularly our governor, could allow no evacuation route for these residents. And many of them are elderly, disabled, and, and already sickly from, from the surrounding uh, toxicity uh, given the petrochemical community. And uh, I just need to kind of put this out there because it is so huge and so extreme and so um, absolutely uh, angering that this kind of what I, what I feel is, is racism is still um, happening in our state today. So I, I appreciate you raising that. Uh, I think it's something that may come up tonight in the in the town hall meeting. Thanks for the call to Drake in Baton Rouge. Hi, Drake. I'm glad you waited. How are you? I'm doing well. I, uh, what are you I thinking about? Speak, uh, well, my ideas do kind of go to the community engagement. And I'm from Baton Rouge, but I do have my grandparents who for many, many generations have lived on the North Shore in Friedel, Louisiana. And in Katrina, they did lose their property, but luckily enough, they were able to relocate, rebuild, and go back. But some of the things that were there that I grew up with, like their fishing camp, those are things that were just gone and kind of lost. And that was a part of our community that, that we did lose, but we we moved forward. But in 2016, when the flooding happened here in Baton Rouge, a lot of the cities north of Baton Rouge were severely, severely impacted. And those people there really did fight to be able to get federal monies to rebuild. But unfortunately, uh-huh. those are communities which largely deny 
that climate change is an issue. And like the culture here infects the people and that decides who they vote for and that decides what policies that we ultimately put in place to protect anybody, much less the, com- the communities that can't rebuild. And unfortunately, the inflow and outflow of money to the special interest that we have here only really goes one way. And a great example of that is the reopening of the, the salt mining in Bayou Corn, which recently had a sinkhole that really evacuated an entire community, and they have no way of ever returning there. It, Drake, uh, how you sound like you're fairly young. Are you in your 20s? I'm in my 20s, yes, ma'am. Okay. Are, are you politically active? I'm knowledgeable, but not as active as I should be. Because what you said really reminds me of what Happy said at the beginning of the discussion, which is you have to activate the next generation on this, right? And I also hear what Drake is saying about elections matter, who you vote for ends up mattering to what the plans that, you know, get developed and what the state legislature and the federal government do. Absolutely. Drake, you should run for office. <laughs> and when you do follow me on Instagram at uh, sustain the nine, um, I want to I think what a fair question is for, for the federal government, folks in Montana, Canada, wherever. Is the city of New Orleans investing its money in innovative, renewable projects? Yeah. Are we creating an adaptive future with the money that we collect through tax revenue? And if the question to that is no. You mean the answer to that is no. <laughs> when the answer to that is no, then I think that's a that's a problem. And luckily that we have some new council leadership that recognize, like Helena Moreno, they recognize how are how these things look to the federal government? How should we how are we funding a gas plant that is gonna have carbon emissions, you know, in a wetland, on a floodplain that doesn't incorporate solar or wind or renewable? You know, we have other small towns like Abita Springs and Vidalia that are pledging 100 percent renewable by 2025 and 2030. You know, New Orleans has got to catch up with that to even kind of get on a on a plant, you know, level balanced playing field with your question. Heather, I think of you with this, too, because you're in education and you're teaching students. What what is your sense about the empowerment that the next generation feels and make you know in meeting a lot of these deepest challenges head on so i work with usually 6 to 8th grader middle school and younger and so ah, okay i think it's kind of an abstract for them like oh yeah there's this thing that's climate change or there's environmental changes or but they don't fully understand what it is i'm okay one of the Got it lessons that I did this year was on erosion. And they had spent a week studying it in their science class. And then I came in at the end of the week and they experienced one of my virtual reality lessons. And she said, you know, I didn't fully understand what erosion meant until I could hear it and see it from the people who have lived there and their lives have been changed by it. Mm -hmm. So I think the communities, this is why I think it's so important to get the community voice out there, not just for resiliency plans, but also for educating um, those who are even in Louisiana. I mean, these are students from Louisiana that don't realize what's happening 200 miles from them. Right. 
I, I think it might be interesting to hear from Pat if she's still on the line in Stillwater, Minnesota. Do we have her or I thought she was in our no. Okay, shoot. Sorry about that, Pat. I know it took a while, but she was talking about the connection between the headwaters and the Gulf. Uh, to AJ in New Orleans. Hi, AJ. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi. Hi, thanks. Uh, you know, listening to Danny uh, talking about fishing, I've been a uh, kayak fisherman here for a few years. And when you're out there in a kayak, you really see the changes over time. I mean, it's almost uh, Bob Marshall calls it a guilty pleasure how great it is to fish here, but it's because the intrusion of the salt water is coming and it's relentless. And I share his um, oh, feeling that, it, that it's it's coming and, and there's no stopping it. I hear the plaintive voices of the, the groups of people, the Cajuns and the Indians that live in these areas. Uh, and our history is not good. I mean, the history of this country is, does not favor saving poor people, especially small groups of poor people in places that are are uh, threatened. But here I am, I'm a, I'm in my 60s, I'm a homeowner in New Orleans, and you know I'm thinking along the lines that, well, I wonder how much longer my home is actually going to have value. Will I be able to I'm sure. sell it and, you know, fund my retirement? And because a lot of times that's, that's all that people really have as far as retirement. Uh, in a big place like New Orleans, there's there's lots of interest to protect. And other than the oil industry down in Fushan, I can't think of who else wants to save that area is going to come in and do it. Um, but in New Orleans, there's business, there's culture, and there's uh, you know a lot more backing and try to figure out what to do, even if it's uh, becoming like Galveston and uh, building a wall around us. <laughs> but I, uh, AJ, I, I really appreciate the insight. I'm, I'm really sorry to say that we're out of time. The conversation does continue tonight. You can read more about what we've been talking about all week on the Water Main, watermain.org. Happy, thank you. Really good to have you. You're the best. Thank you. Tegan, thanks for being here, and then we'll be hanging out tonight together. Sounds good. Heather, thank you. Really good to have you on Flyover. Thank you. You as well. Continue to talk to me about this on Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. And for everybody that's coming tonight, I'll see you then. Flyover Down the Mississippi River is produced by Minnesota Public Radio News, Iowa Public Radio, and WWNO in New Orleans. It's a collaboration with The Water Main at American Public Media, helping Americans understand the value of water in our everyday lives.